0: I want to talk about how we might understand Revelation as an artistic, creative experience, what it means to find what you're looking for, what it means to find the mode and motive and expression of the art that it dwells deep inside you, what it means to point at and learn from a deeper reality that people throughout the centuries have called God, but is just a mystery. And the word God is just the blanket we put over the mystery to give it shape. That all beautiful art, all beauty, comes from a place deep within, a deep wellspring of spirituality, and self-awareness, and passion. So in this revelation at the mountain of Sinai, neither the smallest nor the largest of mountains, the Israelites go camping. They encounter God as God expresses God's self as Elkanah, the impassioned God. And they express fear and resist resistance to letting God speak. It seems like something that would be so awesome and terrible as it might destroy their minds. And then when God does begin to speak, the people see and saw the voices, which is called a synesthesia, an experiencing of what would typically be one sense through another sensory organ. Seeing through your nose, hearing through your eyes is what's described here. Seeing the voices, the voice, the thunderclap of God. Our later sages saw, just underline this concept that they saw what would ordinarily be heard and they heard what would ordinarily be seen. I don't think sages of the medieval period had the word for synesthesia, but it is an actual, I believe, neurochemical phenomenon. And what I want to stress to you. It's not just that God is a metaphor, but the revelation is itself a metaphor, right? That that whatever they were trying to describe in understanding what it means to experience God's deeper reality, that that the world has an origin and a heart and a meaning, is itself a metaphor. They used a metaphor of what was probably an earthquake or a volcano erupting to describe revelation in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, but As Abraham Joshua Heschel, the 20th century rabbi, reports, says, as a report about Revelation, the Bible itself is already a secondary story. It's not telling what Revelation is like. That would be humanly impossible. You can't really convey in words what a mystical experience is, what it is to discover the deepest meaning of your art, what it is to have epiphany and to know without doubt a new song. To discover beauty, to carve within the marble a statue that hadn't been there—those are all revelations that evade and escape words, as Heschel points out. Hi, Janet. Bible itself is already what our sages call midrash, right? a meaning-making device, a fan fiction around an ancient experience, an inexpressible experience of revelation. So, how do we cultivate? What you might call inspiration, epiphany, or revelation—certainly what the Bible is thinking of as revelation of God—but to an artist might just be the slow and steady appreciation of watercolor until it becomes a figure that we did not anticipate. It might be the next chapter in a book that leads us down a rabbit hole we hadn't imagined. How do we cultivate the ability to hear, see through all of our senses, and to discover? deeper meaning. Some of that is frankly just stillness and quiet and letting go and putting down your phone. I, I still dream, though now that I'm on Instagram it might be hard, of only having a flip phone. That's, that's my life ambition, is to go back to a flip phone. One of the commandments offered at Sinai is of course the commandment for Sabbath, for rest one out of seven days. And what's interesting, if you count the verbs of what we call the Ten Commandments, there are more than ten. And even our sages of the second, third, and fourth century imagined more than ten. It wasn't such a simple accounting. They said in the Mechilteh that there are two commandments. There's the commandment to work and the commandment to rest. Likewise for the artist, likewise for the creator, there's time to create and time to gather, time to procrastinate. We call it procrastination, but it's really just a summing up, a gathering of the material that will be turned into art. And of course, it's not truly possible to rest. As I say when I lead meditation, you can't be perfectly silent. You can only be quiet. You can't be perfectly still. You can just be less vibrating, less moving. So later on in that same rabbinic description, it says, could you really do all your work in six days? No, that's, that's not realistic. There's always things left, emails left unanswered, things left on the to-do list. And you have to go home. And it says you should rest on the Sabbath as if all your work is done. There may still be text messages to respond to, but for this time we're together, or for your Sabbath, or one hour a week, maybe when you go out for a walk in the woods, you put your phone aside. The work we'll be waiting for you when you get back. It always is. I guess that just means you're alive and you can be, at some degree, grateful to it. Also in cultivating artistic and creative inspiration, there's the necessity to be bounded. Not just to be bounded within a canvas or the 12 bars of a blues song, but to set oneself aside. To move not just in time into that seventh-day sabbatical period, but also to find sacred space and sacred constructions, whether it's a notebook you write in, a particular place you sit when you think, whatever it would be. The Israelites, when they arrive at Mount Sinai, they, there is a boundary setting right, where they can't pass above a certain point of the mountain. It would be too dangerous. And they separate themselves from their marital relationships for a certain amount of time, three days. I'm not saying you should become a monk in order to be an artist, but a certain amount of monkishness is something I am enjoying more and more in my life. Saying no as a way of saying yes. Um, The Daily Stoic pointed this out, that every every yes means you're saying no to something else, and every no means you're saying yes to something. Unfortunately, as mortals, our time is limited. And likewise, we create sacred spaces, both by excluding who can come, who can interfere, what phone calls we'll admit, where we go, what tent we sleep in. But also recognizing that holiness and the infinite and inspiration is not evenly distributed. There are places in life, the Celts called them thin places, where we are more likely to experience God, inspiration, revelation. So... Repeatedly in Hebrew scripture, we're told to go to God's place, to the place that God chooses, which later on comes as associated with Jerusalem, the tabernacle, and the temple. But here is just the sense of going to the mountain. The place, says one of our later sages, to where my glory is manifest. The mountain where my presence is presently in residence. It's not rhyming in, in Hebrew, but it, it sounds great in English. My, where my presence is presently in residence. Residence. Oh my God, it's hard to say. I don't know where that is for you. This space where I work with all of its light has become a sacred space to me. A lot of studios are sacred spaces. Smoky Mountains National Park could be a sacred space, Glacier National Park. Your backyard, your garden is the place where God's presence is presently in residence. And that changes from day to day. That's okay. But this imperative to set aside, to put aside work, to set aside sacred time and space, is always part of the creative process. And we think of the creative process as performative. As a stage actor, I loved being on stage and engaging with the audience. But there's also long, quiet walks to discover the character. There's long moments of stillness before we carve. There's moments of silence, a nap, where we are refreshed and find what we need and what we're looking for. In the rabbinic tradition, when they speak about this revelation, Rabbi Abahu says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, when God gave revelation, the Torah at Sinai, at least the Ten Commandments, as Bible recognizes it, no bird twittered, no fowl flew, no ox load, none of the heavenly host sang or stirred a wing the sea did not roar. The creatures did not speak. The whole world was hushed into breathless silence until God's voice went forth. Yeah. If you know me, you know I, I think a lot about the preciousness of silence. And it could just be that I have two, four loud boys and several pets. But I think even before that and without that awareness of the chaos, I, I would hope I would understand the beauty and necessity of silence in the creative act. The beauty of waiting until the moment arrives. The beauty of taking time out, space apart. And then the ways in which that can inform our discernment. The Torah reading this week begins that Moses is judging the people and becoming tired. And the Talmud says of judgment, it's very understanding of the necessity for law, not necessarily as a way to effect morality. Because law and morality are only adjacent or overlapping, but not the same thing. But that a society without law, without respect for the rule of law, is a deadly society. It's a Kafkaesque society. It's a dangerous society. So our sages in Talmud really valued the judge. And they say that every judge who judges with utter faithfulness, even for a single hour, our tradition regards it as though that person had become a partner with God in creation. Discernment is a part of creation. To use this color palette and not that, to film with a prime lens and not a zoom lens. All these small choices, all these edits, whatever the mode you're in, taking out, putting in semicolons in your essay, what not to put in a tattoo. All the discernments. It's part of the art too. There's a lot of stories about um, the end of Star Wars being better because of its edit. And the editing was done by um, Spielberg, Lucas's wife. (coughs) You can watch things like that online. Being a judge, not a critical judge, not a harsh judge, but a fair judge of one's work and the work of one's collaborators, can be very powerful in elevating the nature of art and revelation. And I want to leave you with one beautiful image from the Jewish tradition that I, I keep coming back to. Torah revelation is given on this mountain in the middle of the Sinai desert. And we're told that the mountain is not the largest mountain, it's not Everest, it's not the smallest mountain, it's not a foothill, it's a humble mountain. And why, says our tradition, was the Torah given in a desert? to teach us that if a person does not surrender oneself to it like the desert, you cannot merit the words of Torah and inspiration. And just as the desert is endless, so is this instruction without end. There is a certain foregoing of the ego to make art. I, I don't know what the trick there is. I do know it's real. Hi, Susan. I do know it's necessary. I don't know how to do it at every moment. It's always a continuing practice, but I love the image of making oneself as a desert. Empty and vacant and capable of anything and nothing. So this week I invite you to find moments of respite, whether it's a bounded time, a sacred space, an openness, or a clarity of judgment, that you make your art and enhance your creativity through these processes that are suggested by Torah and within you.